Hello again, fight fans, and welcome to episode number 115 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Quick reminder, please go to the Apple Podcast, find Montero on Boxing, find The Neutral Corner, drop us a review, drop us a rating, subscribe to the podcast, tell everybody about it. It's also on SoundCloud and on Stitcher. All right, let's get started with news and notes. So some quick ratings news. I saw, or I'm sure most of you guys saw this already, but the fight between Mikey Garcia and Sergey Lipinets did an average audience of 618,000 viewers, a peak of 689K. That was down significantly from Mikey Garcia's fight with Adrian Broner, which did an average of 881,000 and a peak of 937,000. So you know, for Mikey Garcia, who seems to think he's this huge superstar in boxing and he could just bounce around in different weight classes and do whatever he wants to do, the proof is in the pudding here. I mean, with that Broner fight, it was Adrian Broner bringing the ratings. He goes up and he fights Sergey Lipinets, and technically that was a title fight and everything else. He wins his fourth title in the fourth weight class. I've talked about all that, but the viewership was significantly down. Now, for the record, he was going head-to-head -head against an ESPN broadcast between Oscar Valdez and Scott Quigg, which to date is the highest-rated top rank on ESPN telecast of 2018. The entire broadcast, including the whole undercard, the entire broadcast start to finish, averaged over 1.1 million viewers, and the peak for the main event was much higher than that. So, you know, comparatively... Oscar Valdez, and I know ESPN's a much bigger platform than, than Showtime, but all things considered, you know, Valdez hasn't been around nearly as long as Mikey Garcia. Uh, I think it's a pretty good rating for Valdez Quig. And, you know, it's a decent rating for Garcia Lipinets, all things considered as well. I just think that Mikey Garcia, he's a little delusional right now. He's not quite the huge star that he thinks he is. And he's going to have to take risks and realize that opponents matter if you want to do those big ratings and get those big, big paydays. For Oscar Valdez, he suffered a broken jaw in that fight with Scott Quigg. I've talked about that. He had successful surgery on the jaw. It was wired shut. And he, he tweeted, or I think it was on Instagram, he posted a photo from the hospital uh, with his jaw wired shut and face a little busted up. And it looked like his left hand was, was very, very bruised as well. So he earned his money the hard way against the much, much bigger, heavier Scott Quigg in a great, great fight, though, that I'm sure is going to build him some fans. Let's see how he looks coming back off that injury. He's probably going to be gone for the rest of 2018. Seriously. All right, let's talk about some fights coming together. Jorge Linares, Vasyl Lomachenko. It's official. May 12th on ESPN from Madison Square Garden in New York City. Now... I talked about this before, uh, but when this fight was kind of being rumored and it was going back and forth and then it was dead, and I talked about the great cross-promotion opportunity for Golden Boy Promotions here, who at first weren't crazy about fighting Jorge Linares on May 12th on ESPN because they considered that to be counter-programming for their Canelo-Golovkin replay that will be the same night on HBO. But here's the thing. Cooler heads prevailed, and they realized, hey, we got a lot to work with here, and ESPN is going to do an earlier time slot for Linares Lomachenko on ESPN, 
Then we're going to go over to HBO where they're going to show the Canelo Golovkin replay, obviously. But also, Saddam Ali is going to defend his WBO 154-pound title against Liam Smith. So, and that, I think that Ali Smith fight will be on Box Nation in the UK as well. That's in Turning Stone Casino in upstate New York. So, in the same night, you're going to get Lenaris Lomachenko from New York City. Then you're going to get Ali Smith from upstate New York, and then you're going to get the Canelo Golovkin replay all on the same night. That's a great night of boxing, and that's how you do it. And part of the deal with Lenaris Lomachenko is that Golden Boy Promotions is going to uh, promote the Canelo Golovkin replay and the Ali Smith card on the ESPN broadcast and on ESPN the week of the fight. So that's a great cross-promotion opportunity. I'm glad somebody heard me and others talking about this stuff, and they realized the opportunity they had there to take advantage of it. I think it's a great, great fight. About Lenaris Lomachenko, I tweeted a poll. Over 400 of you voted. Just who you guys like so far. What are your early predictions? 12% of you, only 12% of you, like Linares, 9% of you by decision, 3% by KO. The other 88% of you like Lomachenko, 45% unanimous decision, 43% KO. Now, Twitter does not allow you to do a fifth option, or else I would have said no Moschenko. And for those of you who voted, 43% of you voted Lomachenko KO, I imagine most of you guys are in the no Moschenko category, and you think that he's going to make Linares quit. I'm not so sure about that, man. Uh, Linares is a good quality uh, talent. He's an experienced fighter. He's been around the world. He's naturally bigger, stronger than Lomachenko. He's got fast hands. He moves well. He's light in his feet. And I just don't think Loma has the world-class power to get him out of there. And I just don't see Linares quitting on the stool. He just doesn't seem to have that mentality. My early feeling is that's going all 12 and Lomachenko is going to win fairly wide on the cards, but that's definitely going to be an entertaining fight. It'll be one-sided, but competitive and one-sided. Those are my early thoughts. Now, some other fights that are being talked about, uh, possibly coming down uh, the pike soon. Sergey Kovalev, Marcus Brown. Now, I think they've agreed to terms. The deal's done. Madison Square Garden Theater HBO, but I don't think they have a date yet. They're talking about late June. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be in July. And, you know, I like this fight. For the record, for the record, uh, Brown was offered, Marcus Brown was offered fights with Sergey Kovalev last November 25th when he fought Shabransky and just March 3rd where he fought, um, I can't even remember, uh, McCulkin, the guy, the guy everyone's calling Macaulay Culkin. He was offered those two dates. He turned it down. He didn't like the purse. So I don't know if main events beefed up the purse or what it is, but uh, they, they made this fight, apparently, and it's just a matter of time before we get a date set. I think they just got to figure out uh, which dates the MSG theater is available. Like I said, it, it could possibly happen late June. I tend to think it's going to be pushed back into July. Uh, we'll see. But, you know, look, a lot of people are favoring Marcus Brown in this fight. He's got a good chance. He's seven years younger than Kovalev, and he's a southpaw. And he's a little longer, even though he's a little shorter. I think it's like an inch shorter or something. He is, I think he has three inches of reach on Sergey. He's got long arms, 
And that southpaw style you saw with Macaulay Culkin, that gave Kovalev something to think about here and there, although Kovalev won every single minute of every single round. But Brown, obviously, is a step up from that. Here's the thing everyone needs to remember. Marcus Brown has looked good in recent fights. He scored knockouts. He's looked very, very impressive. He's never fought a top 10 light heavyweight, ever. And he's never truly had his chin checked. I think he's been down before. He's been down against guys that don't punch as hard or as straight or as accurately as Kovalev does. Never had his chin checked by an elite level light heavyweight, which Kovalev still is, in my opinion, although I don't think he's quite near what he was. I think Andre Ward kind of took his soul in a way. But I, I, my early feelings about this fight, it's going to be competitive early. It, it might go the distance, but I, I got a strong feeling Kovalev could stop this guy. He just he hasn't been in with this caliber of opponent. And Sergey Kovalev has fought everybody in a division, those who weren't ducking him like Adana Stevenson, that is. Also, Sergey Derevyanchenko going up against Demetrius Andrade. So they've agreed to terms for a fight in May. But here's the thing. Neither HBO or Showtime, at the time I'm recording this anyway, has been enough money to make the fight a reality, to make it worth the, the, the effort for the fighters. So Sergey Derevyanchenko is a mandatory for one of the titles held by Golovkin, the eventual Canelo Golovkin 2 winner. He's supposed to get a crack at them. But the politics and the business of boxing, as it is, it's not going to happen for a while, if ever. That title might become vacant before Derevyanchenko gets his shot. Even if he does get a crack at the winner between Canelo Golovkin, it's going to be a while. So, Because, look, that fight might be close, controversial, and if so, they're going to do it a third time in September. So I like that Derevyanchenko wants to stay busy. He fought on an undercard recently, I think in like an eight-rounder or something to stay busy. But going up against Demetrius Andrade, that's a tough fight. I like that a lot. That's not an easy fight for Derevyanchenko. If Andrade is willing to take that fight, it's not an easy fight for him. Both guys would be facing the best opponent of their career, especially for Andrade. He'd be making a quantum leap in opposition. But Andrade has looked so bad in recent fights, and Derevyanchenko's not a name to where I don't know if either network's going to want to put up the money. In the end, I would think HBO would pony up the dough because... One of these guys, again, the winner of that fight would have a mandatory position for the winner between Canelo Golovkin. So you're in that business. Spend the damn money. Showtime's whooping your ass anyway. Spend some cash. This fight's not expensive. And put on the fight. You know, in terms of contrast of styles, I actually like the fight. I think Andre's going to have to fight harder than he's been pushed before. So I'd like to see it. All right. Jeff Horn. Terrence Crawford, delayed till May, probably June. I know they're talking about May, but it's probably going to be June. Uh, Terrence Crawford's claiming that he injured his hand. I haven't seen any evidence of that. I haven't seen a doctor's note, an x-ray, a picture, nothing like that at all. And I'm not saying he is lying, but I'm saying that the injury excuse is very often used in boxing to delay and push fights back. It's, it's as old as boxing itself, and this just so happens to be the fight that Grandpa Bob wants to uh, announce the top-ranked boxing series on the ESPN Plus app, right? This is supposed to be the fight, the first fight, the first big fight anyway, on the ESPN app that's coming out soon, which I think is supposed to drop in June. So that's why I think this fight's going to be delayed till June, probably in, uh, I think it's in Las Vegas, probably Mandalay Bay. 
So the difference, some of you guys have asked about this ESPN app, because I think ESPN has an app right now. This is going to be, I think, five bucks a month, and you don't have to have cable. You don't have to have ESPN to have it. Five bucks, and you get this app. And I believe that Top Rank has plans to do a lot of boxing on the app with some of their prospects and upcoming fighters fighting uh, more frequently, more often on the app. So from a boxing point of view, I think it'd be worth five bucks a month. And, you know, I believe all the other sports and stuff like that, or at least a lot of them will be featured there. So it sounds like a good idea because ESPN, the network, is largely a disappointment these days. All right, before I get into the review of what happened last week, I wanted to talk real quickly because I heard, you know, I was listening to Ringside Report. Shout out to those guys. I think that they uh, do a great job every week. I have fun listening to them. I don't listen every week, but I listen every now and then. And I've actually called into that show before. Uh, I think they do a, a good job. I, I really, really enjoy what they do because they do it from an unbiased point of view. And they take in all points of view, even though a lot of their callers are wacky. But there were, for, for some reason, this week's episode turned into the Anthony Joshua is ducking Deontay Wilder episode. A lot of the callers are coming and saying that. And this is something that's a theme I've been seeing since Wilder beat Ortiz. It's a theme I've seen with some of the YouTubers uh, that come from that side of the universe, the, the PBC pom-pom waivers, the anti-Eastern European fighters, you know, everything's racist, 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 those guys. And people on Twitter have been kind of singing the same tune for a while. Guys, I've been telling you for months now that Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua are not going to fight this year. They're going to fight next spring. And they're very likely going to fight a two or three fight series. It's going to be a very, very similar deal to what we're seeing with Canelo Golovkin. The difference is I think one fight might be in the UK and one fight might be in Vegas. I think that they might actually do different venues where I think... Golden Boy Promotions and Canelo Alvarez are completely selling out for the money, and they're going to go to Vegas every time with Golovkin. They're going to demand that. But we might see some change of venues with Joshua and Wilder. Unless there's a devastating knockout in the first fight, and it's completely one-sided, these two guys are going to fight more than once. It's going to be a series, and it's going to take time to develop. Nobody is ducking right now, and it's absolutely ridiculous to say so. Ever since Deontay Wilder won that fight with Luis Ortiz, there have been people saying that he's the top heavyweight in the world. His win over Ortiz is more impressive than AJ's win over Vladimir Klitschko, which is about the stupidest thing you could say, and that Joshua and Hearn are ducking him. And some of Anthony Joshua's recent words, his choice of words, have you know weren't the best choice of words as it relates to Deontay Wilder, and it might make him seem like he's not anxious about the fight. Keep these things in mind, guys. Eddie Hearn has a plan. He's not an idiot. He has the potential fighter who will become the biggest box office draw maybe since, probably since, definitely since Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> I was about to say probably or maybe, but no, he, he will be the biggest draw since Floyd Mayweather. And in some ways, he might become a bigger draw. There, there's, the sky's the limit with Anthony Joshua if things develop the right way. Eddie Hearn's not in a rush to do anything. For those of you who are saying, well, Mike, you're just shilling for Eddie Hearn now because I shill for a different person every week, depending on which wacko listens to the show and nitpicks one sentence or something from my ranting. I'm not shilling for Eddie Hearn. I'm telling you guys the way the business of boxing works. And I told you, 
look, for two years, for a year and a half, you guys, there were several of you on my channel saying, Canelo's ducking Golovkin. The fight's not going to happen. And I kept telling you, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in 2017. I've been telling you guys. And then it happened. I'm telling you the same thing with Joshua Wilder. Make no mistake, Anthony Joshua is the number one heavyweight in the world. Deontay Wilder is the number two heavyweight in the world. They're one and two. Every, and then there's the field, okay? But Anthony Joshua, I think a lot of you are forgetting, he turned pro in 2013. With his 19th pro fight, he fought Vladimir Klitschko, the last great heavyweight since Lennox Lewis. In his 21st pro fight, he's going up against his second legit top five heavyweight in Parker. He's going to unify titles in that fight and take an O, likely, as I favor AJ in that fight. You contrast that to Deontay Wilder, who went pro five years earlier. He went pro in 2008. He just fought his 40th pro fight, and it took his 40th pro fight to face the first legitimate opponent of his career. Now, if you want to say Berman Stavern is the first legitimate or opponent, okay, fine. That was, what, his 31st, 32nd fight? So it was 30-plus fights in before he faces Berman Stavern for a heavyweight title. And let's be real. Even that version of Berman Stavern is probably at the level of Joshua Parker right now. They're probably even on the same level. And Vladimir Klitschko is light years better than Luis Ortiz. Yes, a faded, laid-off Vlad coming off that layoff, coming off a loss, it's still much, much better than Luis Ortiz, whose blood pressure health issues were so bad that the New York State Athletic Commission did not clear him to fight until the morning of the fight against Wilder. They flew in Charles Martin, of all people, Friday night and put him on standby in case Ortiz couldn't go Saturday night. That guy, that chubby dude whose best win coming into that fight was against Bryant Jennings coming off a loss to Vladimir Klitschko. Anybody saying... Wilder's win over Ortiz is better than Joshua's win over <laughs> Klitschko is insane. Insane. That's just nutty. Right now, look, I've, we'll talk about A.J. Parker next week. Obviously, we'll preview that. But I favor him in that fight. And I think Parker is going to be better and more competitive than people are giving him credit for. I think he's had a couple of lackluster performances because he's fallen in love with himself. But all things considered, I think that's going to be a good fight, and it's a quality win. Uh, this comparison is a little nutty to me, and I don't see how AJ and Hearn are ducking Wilder. I think they're building that fight. And Wilder needs AJ, not the other way around. Either way, that fight has to happen. And the expiration date is next spring, and that's when it will happen. All right? For those of you who say I'm shilling for Eddie Hearn and you're going to make videos about me, make three-hour chats about me, blah, 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 check back with me next spring, okay? All right, that's it for news and notes today. Let's get into the review of what took place last week. All right, so Friday, March 16th, it was the return of LA Fight Club here in Los Angeles, the Belasco Theater downtown. These cards are aired live on the Spanish network, Estrella TV and they're streamed live on Ring TV's website. On this card, Antonio Orozco, remember him? Yeah, I guess he's still fighting. He actually made weight, 140 pounds, wins a unanimous decision, and an eight-rounder. A guy who was on the cusp of a title opportunity a few years ago, a couple years ago, is now fighting an eight-rounders on undercards of LA Fight Club, which is a 
Club Series. <laughs> That's just insane. Also, LA featherweight prospect Edgar Valerio rolls on to 13-0 with eight knockouts with a TKO one. Saturday, March 17th in Subang Jaya, Malaysia. I'm going to try to say this name right. Give me a chance here. Kudratilo Ubdakak Horov. Kudratilo Ubdakak Horov. I think I did pretty good with that. Wins the WBC silver welterweight title. Now 14-0 with nine knockouts. This guy's on a fast track, right? Uh, he's from Uzbekistan, now based in Malaysia. An Uzbekistani fighter, now based in Malaysia. This is, this is interesting. Keith Thurman is the WBC regular champ, so at some point, Abdakokharov should get a, a chance at Keith Thurman, but I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. We'll see. Uh, for this fighter, this Uzbeki fighter, um, look, 170 and 10 as an amateur, four-time Uzbekistan national champion, but he really only fought at the national and regional level. He didn't ever fight in his amateur career at the global level. His, his amateur career is kind of comparative to the heavyweight I was just talking about, Luis Ortiz, who was a standout on the Cuban national team, but never really fought in big global tournaments, in, in big international tournaments and world championships and things like that. So this guy, uh, we'll see, but his birth name, holy shit, I, I'll try. The birth name is Quadratio Jabulio Oli Abdukazarov. <laughs> I, I mean, it's crazy. So his, his business name is a little easier to pronounce, but holy shit, if this guy ever gets on American television, if he has anything of substance and gets on American TV, it's going to be hilarious to hear the guys on Showtime trying to say his name. Okay, over here in the United States, we had a card at Madison Square Garden in the theater. It was another top rank on ESPN card. This is two cards in a row, two weeks in a row for them. You had the card in Los Angeles a week back with Valdez Quig in the rain. That was a memorable, fun card. And then in New York, MSG Theater. So boom, boom, two weeks in a row, the two biggest markets in, in the United States, two of the biggest boxing markets in the world, back-to-back, and two back-to-back -back main events that deliver. And two memorable events. I talked about the rain at StubHub Center. And in MSG, it was uh, it was St. Paddy's Day. So you had all the Irish fans come out for Michael Conlon. It was a fun atmosphere, and it bled through the screen. So on the undercard, Puerto Rican super featherweight prospect Chris Christopher Diaz stayed undefeated. He scored a TKO win. And Michael Conlon, who I just talked about, the Irish fighter, actually fought after the main event. And I see why they did that on ESPN. That was very, very smart. They knew they had enough time for it. it the whole thing, the ring walk lasted longer than the fight. But just the atmosphere and everything, th that's some of the promotional uh, fire that the Europeans do so well that the American promoters don't do so well. And I thought that this was a smart move by top rank. Now, was this, you know, a championship level fight or anything like that? No, Michael Conlon is still an unproven prospect, but it was fun. It was an Irish guy fighting in New York for St. Patrick's Day. It made total sense. And it was a smart thing to do. Look, you build up an ethnic fighter quote-unquote, with an ethnic fan base. That's what you do. It's what promoters have always done. And by the way, 
It's not just in boxing. It's in all sports, all media, all entertainment, movies, television. They're all done this way. That's how you do it. So it makes a lot of sense. And for Conlon, he goes and gets a TKO and stays undefeated as well. He is now working with Adam Booth. He was working with Manny Robles before, but he didn't have any Booth uh, beef, he said, with Robles. He started working with Booth more for the logistical reasons. So he says he wants to fight in Ireland next. I think that is very, very logical and makes sense. We'll see what happens. On the undercard as well, Antonio Lozada Jr. scores a 10th round TKO win over Felix Berdejo. Upset special, right? Is it really that big of an upset? I don't know. I think it's an upset because Verdeo is clearly favored to win, especially when you look at the damn scorecards. They were going to rape Lozada on the scorecards. All Verdeo had to do was finish on his feet, and he couldn't even do that. So for Lozada, great victory for him. That changes his life his career. He's going to get another big opportunity after this. And, you know, good for him. He let his fists do the scoring. That's, that's like the number one lesson in, in, in professional boxing. Sometimes you can't rely on the judges to do the right thing, especially when you're the B side, or in this case, you know, like the C side going up against the name here. You got to let your fists do the judging for you. And that's what Lozada did. Great job by him, man. Uh, he was going to get ripped off his hand scored to fight for him. For Berdejo, he's done. Stick a fork in him. And you guys know I'm big on saying people overrate losses. One loss is nothing. Sometimes one loss makes fighters a lot better. Lennox Lewis would have never been as great as he was. Vladimir Klitschko would have never been as great as he was. Evander Holyfield, these great all-time heavyweights, would have never been as great as they were without the losses they took. Period. End of story. But in this case, this one loss, I really do think, symbolizes the beginning of the end for Felix Berdejo. Top rank signed three 2012 Olympians. And Bobby Arm talked about this in a post-fight presser. There's videos on YouTube and stuff. They signed Jose Carlos Ramirez, who now has a title. Oscar Valdez, who now has a title. And Felix Berdejo. And most of the experts, quote-unquote, including the guy you're listening to right now, yeah, I'm calling myself an expert, screw the haters, I thought Felix Berdejo was going to be the best. I thought he was going to be not necessarily the next big star in boxing, but he was going to take that Puerto Rican mantle. And I didn't necessarily see a Felix Trinidad there. I didn't even really see Miguel Cotto, but I thought... could maybe get close to that kind of career of Miguel Cotto. Win uh, titles in a couple different weight classes, you know, legitimate titles, and become kind of a stable in that New York area market. I really thought he had that potential. It's gone now. There's no potential. He's done. And I don't know what the guy's issues are. It just seems that boxing uh, isn't his thing. And he just he's faded out. And I don't see how you could take the guy seriously at this point. In the co-main, Ukrainian fighter, Oleksandr Vajdik. I don't know if it's Gavajdik or just Vajdik, but he improves to 15-0 with 12 knockouts with the unanimous decision over the Frenchman, Medhi Amar, who was pretty much in there to survive. Uh, got his face busted up a little bit, but so did Vajdik. I think it was his right eye swelled up. And look, sometimes in a fight, you get hit with an awkward shot, you get thumbed, headbutt, 
or you just get hit at the right angle, the right trajectory, there's a hairline fracture, there's a hematoma, something like that, that causes a swelling. And it makes it look like the fight was rougher than it really was. The reality here, guys, is that Vajdik won this fight going away. It wasn't remotely close or competitive, and he was doing whatever the hell he wanted to do in there against a very limited opponent who was in there just to survive. A lot of fans now are saying that Vajdik was exposed in this fight. But look, he got rounds. He went 12 rounds prior to this fight against Amar. He had gone past six rounds only once, and that was against Isaac Chalemba. He went eight rounds in that fight before Chalemba retired with an injury. And Chalemba was getting tuned up pretty well in that fight, so uh, he was looking for a way out based on what I saw, and I was ringside for that one. But he had, just think about that. I think he had gone like six rounds a, a, a few times, and he had gone eight rounds once. This is his first time going 12 rounds. Good experience for this guy. However, he can learn from this experience. Yes, yes, yes. But how much can he learn from it? He's 30 years old. He had a long amateur career, uh, not as long as Guillermo Rigondeaux and, and Vasil Lomachenko and, and everything like that. Obviously, not even a guy like Gennady Golovkin. But well over 100 fights, I believe. And you develop that amateur style and some of the habits stick with you. And a lot of what he does is the same speed. It's straight in, straight out, the same length, the same distance, the same angles. There's not a lot of variation there. So when he gets in there with guys who fight similar to that, like a Sergey Kovalev, and so Sergey does have more nuance than Vajdik. I'm not saying he doesn't. But he, a lot of what Sergey does is mid-range, kind of the same speed, in, out, straight, in, and out. There's not a lot of nuance. There's not a lot of inside fighting. Um, there's that word nuance that everyone loves right now and is on all the channels in the comments section. Um, but when he fights against those guys or against a limited guy like Amar, he's going to have success. But when he gets in there against somebody who has extra dimensions to their game and can fight backing up, can fight on the inside, can fight using angles, there's going to be issues. Now, there's only a handful of those guys out there. Maybe not even a handful. Maybe it's just one or two. So he's got a chance. But I don't look at this guy and see somebody that I think is going to beat um, Dmitry Bivol. I don't see it. I don't, I don't even think he's going to beat a guy like Sergey Kovalev. I just don't see that yet. However, let's remember this. Styles make fights. And you never know what a guy wants to work on in the ring, what he's doing, or a fighter's mentality at that time. There are fighters out there who, who don't care about being entertaining, don't care about getting the knockout. They want to get work in. They want to get rounds in. They just want to get the W. They'll take what's given to them and nothing more. They won't get greedy. Floyd Mayweather made himself an all-time great with that style. So did guys like Bernard Hopkins, Vladimir Klitschko, and a bunch of others I could name. So pump the brakes a little bit. Do I see an elite-level special talent in Vajdik? No. But do I want to see him against the best fighters in the division, the Kovalevs, the Beevils, those guys? Yes, I want to see it. Better Beterbiev, I want to see him in the, in the ring with those guys. Let's see it. And, you know, if... If he stinks to join out with those guys, guess what? He's going to take an L. So we'll find out. Okay, in the main event, 
Jose Carlos Ramirez scores a unanimous decision over Amir Imam, wins a vacant WBC 140-pound title. And I should mention, I should back up to that co-main real quick, guys. Vajdik did win the interim WBC light heavyweight title in that fight. So on paper, he's supposed to get a crack at the winner between Adana Stevenson and Badu Jack, the fight for the WBC light heavyweight championship. Now, we all saw what happened with Eldadir Alvarez, who was the mandatory for Stevenson for 426 years, and the WBC did nothing, and they allowed all the stalling, and Alvarez's management completely screwed him, and I guess technically he's still kind of the mandatory. I don't know. I can tell you this. Top rank is managing Vajdik's career. They are not going to allow the WBC to screw with them. Grandpa Bob don't play like that. So do I think Vojdik's going to be sitting around for 300 years waiting for a shot at Stevenson? If Stevenson beats Jack, absolutely not. There's, that fight will happen. It might take a year and a half. You know, they'll delay as much as they can, but it will happen, um, especially with the performance he just had against Amar, where he looked vulnerable and um, predictable. If Badu Jack wins... Uh, I, I think they'll go right into the fight with Vajdik. I, I think they'll see a guy who is, to quote Floyd Mayweather, who is in charge of Badu Jack's career right now, he's no special effects. He's straight up and down. So I do think we'll see uh, that complete consolidation of the WBC heavyweight title or light heavyweight title at some point. It might take till next year, but I think it'll happen. Anyway, back to Ramirez, who wins the WBC junior welterweight title. Real quick, some people question why this fight was put on in New York City. And at first, I kind of scratched my head. But now, I think it was an absolute genius move. They had to go to New York, St. Patrick's Day, put Michael Conlon there in the theater. That's where he had his pro debut last year on St. Patrick's Day weekend. I was there. It was a Friday night. It was an awesome experience. They're going to bring Conlon back there probably every year or every other year at least. They're going to keep bringing him back there because... It, it makes dollars, it makes sense, it's smart business. You had this fight with Ramirez and Imam that was mandated by the BC. Why not put it on that same card where you know you're going to do a sellout? You know you're going to do a sellout, you know you're going to do a good rating because of the St. Patrick's Day situation with Michael Conlon. Why not do that? It was genius. It was very, very smart. So Ramirez gets a win in a very exciting fight where he really shows some real metal. I thought Amir Imam won several of the early rounds and was really boxing well. And Ramirez had to switch up his game plan a little bit, had to make some adjustments. I thought in the middle rounds, maybe it was around the seventh or eighth round, Imam made a little adjustment and started fighting on the inside more and had some success with it initially. But then you saw Ramirez make another adjustment and closed the show in dominant fashion. Almost had Imam out of there several times in the championship rounds. Exciting fight. Great performance. They do a, a vignette on him earlier in, in the, the card and talk about his mother who made the trip to New York. She just became a permanent resident. She's watching her son. They even interviewed her. Bernardo Asuda interviewed her during the fight, I think between rounds. Given the political situation going on right now with DACA, the immigration situation, all of that, it is perfect effing marketing for this Mexican-American fighter. 
perfect marketing. And now you're going to take everything you just built in New York, you're going to go back to Avenal, California this summer where the kid's going to fight again. And it's very, very possible that Bob Arum, he's trying to put it together. He's working with Regis Prograis promoter now, who I think is, I think it's Lou DiBella off the top of my head. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. But they want to do possibly a card this summer, maybe in July or something like that, where they both fight. Prograis would be on a co-main and the Ramirez in the main event. And then they build up to that eventual fight toward the end of this year. Now, some of you are pissed off about that. Me personally, I think it's great. It's great for a lot of reasons. It makes the eventual fight better. It's TV. It's building a story in a brand that casual fans can relate to and understand. It's a lot like the way uh, the Superfly cards have been done, right? Where the winners face each other next. That's the way you build stuff, guys. You build it into a series. Makes the fight bigger. But more than that, both Ramirez and especially Progray will get more experience to develop themselves in, ahead of their eventual clash together. I like that because especially with Progray, that last fight with Ndongo, it was a fantastic performance. Don't get me wrong, but he got two rounds of experience against a guy who just showed up and got beat. I, he didn't look very good at all in that fight. Not that Ndongo is an elite level fighter by any means, I don't even think you could rate him in the top 10 in that division right now, although that's not the strongest division right now. Um, you know, Progray has not had that proving ground yet that I think Ramirez had in this fight against Imam. And by the way, can we give Amir Imam some credit? A lot of guys were just shitting on him. Look, I, I understand he got knocked out against Granados. It happens. There's no shame in that. He took some hellacious punishment in this fight. His eye, everyone's talking about Vojdik's eye and how bad it looked. Man, Imam's eye looked a lot worse. And so did the rest of his face, not just the eye. And this guy hung tough, bit down, fought as hard as he could. And the 12 rounds of hard work and experience he gave to Ramirez, if Ramirez develops into a true champion, he's, he's a titleist right now. He's not a champion. But if he develops into a real champion or a real attraction in the sport, he's going to look back and be like, it was that fight against Amir Imam. That's the fight where I really learned on the job and really proved myself to the fans on TV and everything else. Amir Imam did a service to Ramirez and to boxing and to that division with his performance in this fight. Instead of laying down like a lot of you are suggesting he did, I thought he fought bravely. Let's give the kid credit. And you know what? Amir Imam deserves another shot down the road should he want it. The difference in the fight, by the way, is that Amir Imam was throwing too much of one punch at a time. And it was working early on because he was faster, his hand speed, much, much faster than Ramirez. But Ramirez was throwing in combinations. He was going upstairs and downstairs. He was giving different angles. And when you're just throwing one punch at a time and when you're only throwing a jab, it can be timed especially if the opponent is willing to eat some of those jabs on their way in and take a little punishment to get inside, to get through the door to do their work. And that's what Ramirez was willing to do. So, okay, I talked about Regis Prograis. He has the interim title. He's supposed to face Jose Carlos Ramirez. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen late this year, in the fall, toward the end of the year. I like the interim card 
with two of them fighting together. They could talk trash. They can build it up. They could do a stare down. They can announce the date and the venue and the time of their eventual fight right after that event. I think it makes a lot of freaking sense. I know some of you are going to give me grief over that, but I really think it makes a lot of sense. One more quick note about this, uh, this whole card here. Judge John Stewart scored the main event 120 to 108 for Jose Carlos Ramirez. Absolutely disgusting, horrible scorecard. I don't care what style you prefer, whatever. You cannot make an argument that Jose Carlos Ramirez won that first round, in my opinion. I thought Amir Imam won at least two of the first three or four rounds. And pretty clearly, I'm not saying he dominated. He never dominated. But just based off his boxing and movement, I thought the kid won a couple of rounds. So he got the right guy. And, and, and let's be honest. I mean, Ramirez won probably nine rounds at least in this fight. So he decisively, in, rather dominantly in the second half of the fight, won. However, 120 to 108, come on. John Stewart, you could do better than that. Okay. Sunday, March 18th in Hyogo, Japan, Ryuya Yamanaka wins via eighth-round retirement for the first defense of his WBO minimum weight title. And Carlos Canizales wins a unanimous decision over Raya Konoshi, wins the vacant WBA junior flyweight title in a minor upset. That's all that happened last week, guys. Let's preview what's coming up this week. Thursday, March 22nd, from the Fantasy Springs Casino in Indio, California. It's Golden Boy Promotions on ESPN. And super featherweight prospect Ryan Garcia, headlines. He's out of Los Angeles, 13-0, 12 knockouts. Also on this card, undefeated welterweight. I'm sorry, not undefeated welterweight. Eddie Gomez, out of the Bronx. He's 20-3 with 11 knockouts. Both of these guys are fighting in 10-rounders. Obviously, Ryan Garcia is a prospect that Golden Boy Promotions is trying to build up. If you follow the guy on Twitter, he takes a lot of selfies with duck lips. Um, and there's a lot of girls that retweet him. The guy has a lot of female friends. He, he definitely brings that element. However, I don't know how much this kid is working on his actual craft because I don't see a lot of craft. I don't see him getting work against fighters where he's learning on the job and going rounds and having to bite down a bit. To me, he looks all offense for show, and chins up, can definitely be tagged, and power looks great, but it's looked great against extremely limited opposition. Yeah, 12 knockouts and 13 fights. Good looking kid. Takes pictures that look like they're in an Abercrombie and Fitch you know, catalog or something that all the girls are going crazy for. That's all great, that's all fine and good. But what happens when he steps up and fights the best fighters at 130 pounds. And then what happens when eventually he can't make 130 and has to move up to 135 or something and fit, fights the best guys there? I think he's going to be in trouble. I just see a lot of things that they need to work on before this kid gets in with the wrong guy in the wrong night and that hype train gets blown up. But I think, obviously, this Thursday, he's going to get a W. And like I said, Eddie Gomez, the Bronx fighter, he's on the co-main of that card. So... Saturday, March 24th, we have a few different cards in different parts of the world. In Hamburg, Germany, there's a Sauerland card featuring light heavyweight Karo Marat and super middleweight uh, Tyrone Zuge. In Krasnodar, 
Russia, undefeated super middleweight prospect Andrei Sirotkin and welterweight Konstantin Ponomarev are fighting in 10 rounders. In Ponce, Puerto Rico, a Golden Boy Promotions and Miguel Cotto Promotions card on ESPN2 and being streamed on ESPN3. This is part of Miguel Cotto's signing with Golden Boy Promotions a couple years back. It was They were going to do these cross-promotional things like this, these co-promotions, I should say. So um, Joshua Franco is a super flyweight undefeated prospect from San Antonio. He's fighting in a 10-rounder. He's 22 years old, 13-0, six knockouts. Also, we have a super flyweight prospect out of Puerto Rico, Jose Martinez. He's fighting in a 10-rounder. He's 25 years old. He has a record of 20, 0, and 1 with 13 knockouts. And Rashidi Ellis out of Lynn, Massachusetts. You guys have seen him before on some of these Golden Boy on ESPN cards. He's fighting in an 8-rounder. He's undefeated welterweight, 24 years old, 18-0 with 12 knockouts. But the big card of the weekend is in O2 Arena in London. It's another matchroom boxing card. And lightweight Lewis Ritson and light heavyweight Frank Bullione are defending their British titles in the undercard. But the main event, Dillian White versus Lucas Brown. And this was an enticing enough heavyweight fight for HBO to pick it up. Some people have questioned them picking up this fight. I think it was smart. What the hell do you guys want them to do? They have no fights on the schedule. Their schedule is shit. HBO Boxing is stir-fried shit right now. You could have no fights, or you could have them pick up this cheap fight overseas. Uh, the licensing fees for fights over there in the UK come cheap to HBO. So this makes sense from a budgetary perspective. And if they're trying to buy into the Anthony Joshua business down the line, this fight also makes sense, right? So Dillian White has already fought Anthony Joshua. And we know he buzzed Joshua. Joshua came back and knocked him out pretty severely. And then we have Lucas Brown, these two guys fighting each other. So I think this is a solid heavyweight matchup. I'm actually looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. Are the, either of these guys a future Hall of Famer? No. Could you even say either of them is a top five heavyweight? No. But the winner of this fight, if it's a decisive definitive victory, you could make the argument they might be the number five heavyweight in the world. They're certainly in the top 10, bona fide top 10, the winner of this fight. If both of these guys fight to a great, entertaining heavyweight fight, maybe they're both at the bottom end of the top 10. Either way, look, I, I like the heavyweights. Guilty as charged, all right? I like watching the heavyweights, and I think these two guys are going to bang. If you just look at the, the style matchup here, I think this one's going to be fun. Now, if Dillian White wins, I mentioned he's already fought AJ. Maybe he fights Deontay Wilder later this year. Makes sense. Deontay Wilder has that WBC title. I think White has the WBC International or something. He has one, like a sliver of the WBC. So... Maybe it's the silver title. I can't remember. But either way, those two might fight. And that could be a precursor to a Wilder and Joshua fight. Makes sense. If Brown wins, he's a good opponent for Wilder or for Anthony Joshua. I think most people are assuming Brown's going to win here. If he wins, I think a fight between him and Joshua is marketable. It makes sense over in the UK. If for some insane reason Joshua wanted to travel to Australia, that'd be a fun event, but obviously I don't see that happening. But let's look at these two fighters, okay? 
White is 22 and 1 with 16 knockouts. Brown is 25 and 0 with 22 knockouts. So on paper, Brown is the harder puncher, the bigger, stronger guy, probably the better athlete of the two. White is 6 foot 4, 78 inch reach. Brown is 6 foot 5, 77 inch reach. White, born in Jamaica, lives in London. He's definitely a UK fighter. Brown from Sydney, Australia. He's Australian guy lived there his whole life. Here's the X factor though. He's nine years older. Nine years older. And that's a lot. Okay, that's a lot. And I know heavyweights age slower. It's all about can you still bang? I get all that. But nine years is a lot, especially when you've been inactive. Brown has traveled before. Remember back in 2016, he fought Ruslan Shigaev in the belly of the beast right in Russia. And we all know what happened then subsequently with the drug testing results and all this different stuff. But he was willing to go to the lion's den and fight a good, quality, proven heavyweight. And he's doing the same thing here against Dillian White, who I don't put in the same level as Ruslan Shigaev. So I think that on paper, you got to favor Brown for that reason, right? Here's the thing. Since White's loss to Anthony Joshua in 2015, he hasn't fought very good opposition. He went life and death with a faded Derek Chisora, but he's fought six times. He's fought 53 rounds in those six fights. So he stayed fairly active. Over that same time span where White has fought six times, 50 plus rounds, Brown fought Shigaev in March of 2016 and then a journeyman in June of 2017. That's it. So how do, you, how do you chop this up, man? I mean, do you look at the guy who's been more active against weak opposition, but the more active fighter? Or do you go with the guy who has the better wins in his career, maybe since he's been sitting on the shelf for a while, the last couple of years with all of his issues outside the ring, maybe he's well-preserved. Has Brown stayed in shape this time outside the ring? Or did he blow up in weight and then get himself back into shape for this fight? Dillian White is a guy that can blow up between fights. How has he stayed in shape since his last fight? We're going to find out. There's all these questions. And that's why I think this is an intriguing matchup. I really, really enjoy it. These, these type of heavyweight matchups because the winner of this fight is in the power position to get a meaningful heavyweight title fight down the line. So I think it makes sense for HBO to pick it up. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to go with Lucas Brown by uh, late TKO, possible unanimous decision, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Dillian White pull this win out either. And he him win by a decision just by maybe being more active, throwing more punches, doing more than what Brown does. I'm interested to see what both guys weigh in at. The weigh-in is going to tell us a lot. It's going to tell us everything we need to know about how the fight's going to go. So, you know, I'll tweet it out. When we see what these guys weigh in at, I'll tweet out my official prediction then. But I'm leaning towards Brown right now. Anyway, let me know what you guys know. Like, comment, share, subscribe. You know the deal. I'll see you at the fights.